Chapter Four, Part Seven of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Morgan Scorpion. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume One, by Charles Mackay. The Alchemists. Part Seven, Doctor D and Edward Kelly. John D and Edward Kelly claim to be mentioned together, having been so long associated in the same pursuits, and undergone so many strange vicissitudes in each other's society. D was altogether a wonderful man, and had he lived in an age when folly and superstition were less rife, he would, with the same powers which he enjoyed, have left behind him a bright and enduring reputation. He was born in London in the year 1527, and very early manifested a love for study. At the age of fifteen he was sent to Cambridge, and delighted so much in his books that he passed regularly eighteen hours every day among them. Of the other six he devoted four to sleep, and two for refreshment. Such intense application did not injure his health, and could not fail to make him one of the first scholars of his time. Unfortunately, however, he quitted the mathematics and the pursuit of true philosophy to indulge in the unprofitable reveries of the occult sciences. He studied alchemy, astrology, and magic, and thereby rendered himself obnoxious to the authorities at Cambridge. To avoid persecution, he was at last obliged to retire to the University of Louvain, the rumours of sorcery that were current respecting him rendering his longer stay in England not altogether without danger. He found at Louvain many kindred spirits who had known Cornelius Agrippa while he resided among them, and by whom he was constantly entertained with the wondrous deeds of that great master of the Hermetic Mysteries. From their conversations he received much encouragement to continue the search for the Philosopher's Stone, which soon began to occupy nearly all his thoughts. He did not long remain on the continent, but returned to England in 1551, being at that time in the twenty-fourth year of his age. By the influence of his friend Sir John Cheek, he was kindly received at the court of King Edward the Sixth, and rewarded, it is difficult to say for what, with a pension of one hundred crowns. He continued for several years to practice in London as an astrologer, casting nativities, telling fortunes, and pointing out lucky and unlucky days. During the reign of Queen Mary he got into trouble, being suspected of heresy, and charged with attempting Mary's life by means of enchantments. He was tried for the latter offence and acquitted, but was retained in prison on the former charge, and left to the tender mercies of Bishop Bonner. He had a very narrow escape from being burned in Smithfield, but he somehow or other contrived to persuade that fierce bigot that his orthodoxy was unimpeachable, and was set at liberty in 1555. On the accession of Elizabeth, a brighter day dawned upon him. During her retirement at Woodstock, her servants appear to have consulted him as to the time of Mary's death, which circumstance no doubt first gave rise to the serious charge for which he was brought to trial. They now came to consult him more openly as to the fortunes of their mistress, and Robert Dudley, the celebrated Earl of Leicester, was sent by command of the Queen herself to know the most auspicious day for her coronation. So great was the favour he enjoyed, that some years afterwards, Elizabeth condescended to pay him a visit at his house in Mortlake, 
to view his museum of curiosities, and when he was ill, sent her own physician to attend upon him. Astrology was the means whereby he lived, and he continued to practice it with great assiduity. But his heart was in alchemy. The philosopher's stone and the elixir of life haunted his daily thoughts and his nightly dreams. The Talmudic mysteries, which he had also deeply studied, impressed him with the belief that he might hold converse with spirits and angels, and learn from them all the mysteries of the universe. Holding the same idea as the then obscure sect of the Rosicrucians, some of whom he had perhaps encountered in his travels in Germany, he imagined that, by means of the philosopher's stone, he could summon these kindly spirits at his will. By dint of continually brooding upon the subject, his imagination became so diseased that he at last persuaded him that an angel appeared to him, and promised to be his friend and companion as long as he lived. He relates that, one day in November 1582, while he was engaged in fervent prayer, the window of his museum looking towards the west suddenly glowed with a dazzling light, in the midst of which, in all his glory, stood the great angel Uriel. Awe and wonder rendered him speechless, but the angel smiling graciously upon him gave him a crystal of a convex form, and told him that whenever he wished to hold converse with the beings of another sphere, he had only to gaze intently upon it, and they would appear in the crystal, and unveil to him all the secrets of futurity. Note 41. The crystal alluded to appears to have been a black stone or a piece of polished coal. The following account of it is given in the supplement to Granger's biographical history. The black stone into which Dee used to call his spirits was in the collection of the Earls of Peterborough, from whence it came to Lady Elizabeth Germain. It was next the property of the late Duke of Argyle, and is now Mr. Walpole's. It appears upon examination to be nothing more than a polished piece of cannel coal, but this is what Butler means when he says, Kelly did all his feats upon the devil's looking-glass, a stone. Thus saying, the angel disappeared. Dee found from experience of the crystal that it was necessary that all the faculties of the soul should be concentrated upon it, otherwise the spirits did not appear. He found that he could never recollect the conversations he had with the angels. He therefore determined to communicate the secret to another person who might converse with the spirit while he, Dee, sat in another part of the room, and took down in writing the revelations which they made. He had at this time in his service as his assistant one Edward Kelly, who, like himself, was crazy upon the subject of the Philosopher's Stone. There was this difference, however, between them, that while Dee was more of an enthusiast than an impostor, Kelly was more of an impostor than an enthusiast. In early life he was a notary, and had the misfortune to lose both his ears for forgery. This mutilation, degrading enough in any man, was destructive to a philosopher. Kelly, therefore, lest his wisdom should suffer in the world's opinion, wore a black skull-cap, which fitting close to his head and descending over both his cheeks, not only concealed his loss, but gave him a very solemn and oracular appearance. So well did he keep his secret, that even Dee, with whom he lived so many years, appears never to have discovered it. Kelly, with this character, was just the man to carry on any piece of roguery for his own advantage, or to nurture the delusions of his master for the same purpose. No sooner did Dee inform him of the visit he had received from the glorious Uriel, then Kelly expressed such a fervour of belief that Dee's heart glowed with delight. He set about consulting his crystal forthwith, and on the 2nd of December, 1581, the spirits appeared, and held a very extraordinary discourse with Kelly, which Dee took down in writing. 
The curious reader may see this farrago of nonsense among the Harleian manuscripts in the British Museum. The later consultations were published in a folio volume in 1659 by Dr. Merrick Cosabon under the title of A True and Faithful Relation of What Passed Between Dr. John Dee and Some Spirits, tending, had it succeeded, to a general alteration of most states and kingdoms in the world. Note 42. Lily the Astrologer, in his life, written by himself, frequently tells of prophecies delivered by the angels in a manner similar to the angels of Dr. D. He says, The prophecies were not given vocally by the angels, but by inspection of the crystal in types and figures, or by apparition the circular way, where, at some distance, the angels appear, representing by forms, shapes, and creatures what is demanded. It is very rare, yea, even in our days, quoth that Weisacher, for any operator or master to hear the angels speak articulately, for when they do speak, it is like the Irish, much in the throat. The fame of these wondrous colloquies soon spread over the country, and even reached the continent. Dee at the same time pretended to be in possession of the elixir vitae, which he stated he had found among the ruins of Glastonbury Abbey in Somersetshire. People flocked from far and near to his house at Mortlake to have their nativities cast, in preference to visiting astrologers of less renown. They also longed to see a man who, according to his own account, would never die. Altogether he carried on a very profitable trade, but spent so much in drugs and metals to work out some peculiar process of the transmutation, that he never became rich. About this time there came into England a wealthy Polish nobleman, named Albert Lasky, Count Palatine of Surratz. His object was principally, he said, to visit the court of Queen Elizabeth, the fame of whose glory and magnificence had reached him in distant Poland. Elizabeth received this flattering stranger with the most splendid hospitality, and appointed her favourite Leicester to show him all that was worth seeing in England. He visited all the curiosities of London and Westminster, and from thence proceeded to Oxford and Cambridge, that he might converse with some of the great scholars whose writings shed lustre upon the land of their birth. He was very much disappointed at not finding Dr. Dee among them, and told the Earl of Leicester that he would not have gone to Oxford if he had known that Dee was not there. The Earl promised to introduce him to the great alchemist on their return to London, and the Pole was satisfied. A few days afterwards, the Earl and Lasky, being in the antechamber of the Queen, awaiting an audience of Her Majesty, Dr. Dee arrived on the same errand, and was introduced to the Pole. Note 43 Albert Lasky, son of Yaroslav, was Palatine of Surratz and afterwards of Sendomir, and chiefly contributed to the election of Henry of Valois, the third of France, to the throne of Poland, and was one of the delegates who went to France in order to announce to the new monarch his elevation to the sovereignty of Poland. After the deposition of Henry, Albert Lasky voted for Maximilian of Austria. In 1583 he visited England, where Queen Elizabeth received him with great distinction. The honours which were shown him during his visit to Oxford, by the especial command of the Queen, were equal to those rendered to sovereign princes. His extraordinary prodigality rendered his enormous wealth insufficient to defray his expenses, and he therefore became a zealous adept in alchemy, and took from England to Poland with him two known alchemists. Count Valerian Krasinski's historical sketch of the Reformation in Poland an interesting conversation ensued, which ended by the stranger inviting himself to dine with the astrologer at his house at Mortlake. 
D returned home in some tribulation, for he found he had not money enough, without pawning his plate, to entertain Count Lasky and his retinue in a manner becoming their dignity. In this emergency he sent off an express to the Earl of Leicester, stating frankly the embarrassment that he laboured under, and praying his good offices in representing the matter to Her Majesty. Elizabeth immediately sent him a present of twenty pounds. On the appointed day Count Lasky came, attended by a numerous retinue, and expressed such open and warm admiration of the wonderful attainments of the host, that Dee turned over in his own mind how he could bind irretrievably to his interests a man who seemed so well inclined to become his friend. Long acquaintance with Kelly had imbued him with all the roguery of that personage, and he resolved to make the Pole pay dearly for his dinner. He found out before many days that he possessed great estates in his own country, as well as great influence, but that an extravagant disposition had reduced him to temporary embarrassment. He also discovered that he was a firm believer in the philosopher's stone and the water of life. He was therefore just the man upon whom an adventurer might fasten himself. Kelly thought so too, and both of them set to work to weave a web, in the, in the meshes of which they might firmly entangle the rich and credulous stranger. They went very cautiously about it, first throwing out obscure hints of the stone and the elixir, and finally of the spirits, by means of whom they could turn over the pages of the book of futurity, and read the awful secrets inscribed therein. Lasky eagerly implored that he might be admitted to one of their mysterious interviews with Uriel and the angels, but they knew human nature too well to accede at once to the request. To the Count's entreaties they only replied by hints of the difficulty or impropriety of summoning the spirits in the presence of a stranger, or of one who might perchance have no other motive than the gratification of a vain curiosity. But they only meant to whet the edge of his appetite by this delay, and would have been very sorry indeed if the Count had been discouraged. To show how exclusively the thoughts of both Dee and Kelly were fixed upon their dupe at this time, it is only necessary to read the introduction to their first interview with the spirits, related in the volume of Dr. Cosabon. The entry made by Dee under the date of the 25th of May, 1583, says, that when the spirit appeared to them, I, John Dee, and E. K., Edward Kelly, sat together, conversing of that noble Polonian, Albertus Lasky, his great honour here with us obtained, and his great liking among all sorts of the people. No doubt they were discussing how they might make the most of the noble Polonian, and concocting the fine story with which they afterwards excited his curiosity, and drew him firmly within their toils. Suddenly, said Dee, as they were thus employed, there seemed to come out of the oratory a spiritual creature, like a pretty girl of seven or nine years of age, attired on her head, with her hair rolled up before and hanging down behind, with a gown of silk, of changeable red and green, and with a train. She seemed to play up and down, and seemed to go in and out behind the books, and she seemed to go between them. The books displaced themselves, and made way for her. With such tales as these they lured on the pole from day to day, and at last persuaded him to be a witness of their mysteries. Whether they played any optical delusions upon him, or whether by the force of a strong imagination he deluded himself, does not appear, but it's certain it is that he became a complete tool in their hands and consented to do whatever they wished. Kelly, at these interviews, placed himself at a certain distance from the wondrous crystal, and gazed intently upon it, while Dee took his place in a corner, ready to set down the prophecies as they were uttered by the spirits. In this manner they prophesied to the pole that 
he should become the fortunate possessor of the philosopher's stone, that he should live for centuries and be chosen king of Poland, in which capacity he should gain many great victories over the Saracens and make his name illustrious over the earth. For this purpose it was necessary, however, that Lasky should leave England and take, with, and take them with him, together with their wives and families, that he should treat them all sumptuously and allow them to want for nothing. Lasky at once consented, and very shortly afterwards they were all on the road to Poland. It took them upwards of four months to reach the Count's estates in the neighbourhood of Krakow. In the meantime they led a pleasant life and spent money with an unsparing hand. When once established in the Count's palace, they commenced the great hermetic op operation of transmuting iron into gold. Lasky provided them with all necessary materials and aided them himself with his knowledge of alchemy, but somehow or other the experiment always failed at the very moment it ought to have succeeded, and they were obliged to recommence operations on a grander scale. But the hopes of Lasky were not easily extinguished. Already, in idea, the possessor of countless millions, he was not to be cast down from, for fear of present expenses. He thus continued from day to day, and from month to month, till he was at last obliged to sell a portion of his deeply mortgaged estates to find ailment for the hungry crucibles of Dee and Kelly, and the no less hungry stomachs of their wives and families. It was not till ruin stared him in the face that he awoke from his dream of infatuation, too happy even then to find that he had escaped utter beggary. Thus restored to his senses, his first thought was how to rid himself of his expensive visitors. Not wishing to quarrel with them, he proposed that they should proceed to Prague, well furnished with letters of recommendation to the Emperor Rudolf. Our alchemists too plainly saw that nothing more was to be made of the almost destitute Count Lasky. Without hesitation, therefore, they accepted the proposal, and set out forthwith to the imperial residence. They had no difficulty on their arrival at Prague in obtaining an audience of the emperor. They found him willing enough to believe that such a thing as the philosopher's stone existed, and flattered themselves that they had made a favourable impression upon him. But for some cause or other, perhaps the look of low cunning and quackery upon the face of Kelly, the emperor conceived no very high opinion of their abilities. He allowed them, however, to remain for some months at Prague, feeding themselves upon the hope that he would employ them. But the more he saw of them, the less he liked them, and when the Pope's nuncio represented to him that he ought not to countenance such heretic magicians, he gave orders that they should quit his dominions within four and twenty hours. It was fortunate for them that so little time was given them, for, had they remained six hours longer, the nuncio had received orders to procure a perpetual dungeon or the stake for them. Not knowing well whether to direct their steps, they resolved to return to Krakow, where they had still a few friends. But by this time the funds they had drawn from Lasky were almost exhausted, and they were many days obliged to go dinnerless and supperless. They had great difficulty to keep their poverty a secret from the world, but they managed to bear privation without murmuring, from a conviction that if the fact were known it would militate very much against their pretensions. Nobody would believe that they were possessors of the philosopher's stone if it were once suspected that they did not know how to procure bread for their subsistence. They still gained a little by casting nativities, and kept starvation at arm's length, till a new dupe, rich enough for their purposes, dropped into their toils in the shape of a royal personage. Having procured an introduction to Stephen, King of Poland, they predicted to him that the Emperor Rudolf would shortly be assassinated, and that the Germans would look to Poland for his successor. 
As this prediction was not precise enough to satisfy the king, they tried their crystal again, and a spirit appeared who told them that the new sovereign of Germany would be Stephen of Poland. Stephen was credulous enough to believe them, and was once present when Kelly held his mystic conversations with the shadows of his crystal. He also appeared to have furnished them with money to carry on their experiments in alchemy, but he grew tired at last of their broken promises and their constant drains upon his pocket, and was on the point of discarding them with disgrace when they met another dupe to whom they eagerly transferred their services. This was Count Rosenberg, a nobleman of large estates at Trebona in Bohemia. So comfortable did they find themselves in the palace of this munificent patron that they remained nearly four years with him, fearing sumptuously and having an almost unlimited command of his money. The Count was more ambitious than avaricious. He had wealth enough, and did not care for the Philosopher's Stone on account of the gold, but of the length of days it would bring him. They had their predictions accordingly, already framed to suit his character. They prophesied that he should be chosen King of Poland, and promised, moreover, that he should live for five hundred years to enjoy his dignity, provided always that he found them sufficient money to carry on their experiments. But now, while fortune smiled upon them, while they revelled in the rewards of successful villainy, retributive justice came upon them in a shape they had not anticipated. Jealousy and mistrust sprang up between the two confederates, and led to such violent and frequent quarrels that Dee was in constant fear of exposure. Kelly imagined himself a much greater personage than Dee, measuring most likely by the standard of impudent roguery, and was displeased that on all occasions and from all persons Dee received the greater share of honour and consideration. He often threatened to leave Dee to shift for himself, and the latter, who had degenerated into the mere tool of his more daring associate, was distressed beyond measure at the prospect of his desertion. His mind was so deeply imbued with superstition that he believed the rhapsodies of Kelly to be in no great measure derived from his intercourse with angels, and he knew not where in the whole world to look for a man of depth and wisdom enough to succeed him. As their quarrels every day became more and more frequent, Dee wrote letters to Queen Elizabeth to secure a favourable reception on his return to England, whither he intended to proceed if Kelly forsook him. He also sent her a round piece of silver which he pretended he had made of a portion of brass cut out of a warming-pan. He afterwards sent her the warming-pan also that she might convince herself that the piece of silver corresponded exactly with the hole which was cut into the brass. While thus preparing for the worst, his chief desire was to remain in Bohemia with Count Rosenberg, who treated him well, and reposed much confidence in him. Neither had Kelly any great objection to remain, but a new passion had taken possession of his breast, and he was laying deep schemes to gratify it. His own wife was ill-favoured and ill-natured. Dee's was comely and agreeable, and he longed to make an exchange of partners without exciting the jealousy or shocking the morality of Dee. This was a difficult matter, but to a man like Kelly, who was as deficient in rectitude and right feeling as he was of impudence and ingenuity, the difficulty was not insurmountable. He had also deeply studied the character and the foibles of Dee, and he took his measure accordingly. The next time they consulted the spirits, Kelly pretended to be shocked at their language, and refused to tell Dee what they had said. Dee insisted, and was informed that they were henceforth to have their wives in common. Dee, a little startled, inquired whether the spirits might not mean that they were to live in common harmony and goodwill. Kelly tried again, with apparent reluctance, and said these spirits insisted upon a literal interpretation. 
The poor fanatic D resigned himself to their will, but it suited Kelly's purpose to appear coy a little longer. He declared that the spirits must be spirits not of good but of evil, and refused to consult them any more. He thereupon took his departure, saying he would never return. D, thus left to himself, was in sore trouble and distress of mind. He knew not on whom to fix as the successor to Kelly for consulting the spirits, but at last chose his son Arthur, a boy of eight years of age. He consecrated him to this service with great ceremony, and impressed upon the child's mind the dignified and awful nature of the duties he was called upon to perform. But the poor boy had neither the imagination, the faith, nor the artifice of Kelly. He looked intently upon the crystal, as he was told, but he could see nothing and hear nothing. At last, when his eyes ached, he said he could see a vague indistinct shadow, but nothing more. Dee was in despair. The deception had been carried on so long that he was never so happy as when he fancied he was holding converse with superior beings, and he cursed the day that had put estrangement between him and his dear friend Kelly. This was exactly what Kelly had foreseen, and when he thought the doctor had grieved sufficiently for his absence, he returned unexpectedly, and entered the room where the little Arthur was in vain endeavouring to distinguish something in the crystal. D. in entering this circumstance in his journal, ascribes this sudden return to a miraculous fortune and a divine fate, and goes on to record that Kelly immediately saw the spirits which had re remained invisible to little Arthur. One of these spirits reiterated the previous command, that they should have their wives in common. Kelly bowed his head and submitted, and D, in all humility, consented to the arrangement. This was the extreme depth of the wretched man's degradation. In this manner they continued to live for three or four months, when, new quarrels breaking out, they separated once more. This time their separation was final. Kelly, taking the elixir which he had found in Glastonbury Abbey, proceeded to Prague, forgetful of the abrupt mode in which he had previously been expelled from that city. Almost immediately after his arrival he was seized by the order of the Emperor Rudolf and thrown into prison. He was released after some months' confinement, and continued for five years to lead a vagabond life in Germany, telling fortunes at one place and pretending to make gold at another. He was a second time thrown into prison on a charge of heresy and sorcery, and he then resolved, if he ever obtained his liberty, to return to England. He soon discovered that there was no prospect of this, and that his imprisonment was likely to be for life. He twisted his bedclothes into a rope one stormy night in February 1595, and let himself down from the window of his dungeon, situated at the top of a very high tower. Being a corpulent man, the rope gave way, and he was precipitated to the ground. He broke two of his ribs and both his legs, and was otherwise so much injured that he expired a few days afterwards. D for a while had more prosperous fortune. The warming-pan he had sent to Queen Elizabeth was not without effect. He was rewarded soon after Kelly had left him with an invitation to return to England. His pride, which had been sorely humbled, sprung up again to its pristine dimensions, and he set out from Bohemia with a train of attendants becoming an ambassador. How he procured the money does not appear, unless from the liberality of the rich Bohemian Rosenberg, or perhaps from his plunder. He travelled with three coaches for himself and his family, and three wagons to carry his baggage. Each coach had four horses, and the whole train was protected by a guard of four-and-twenty soldiers. This statement may be doubted, but it is on the authority of Dee himself, who made it on oath before the commissioners appointed by Elizabeth to inquire into his circumstances. 
On his arrival in England he had an audience of the Queen, who received him kindly as far as words went, and gave orders that he should not be molested in his pursuits of chemistry and philosophy. A man who boasted of the power to turn baser metals into gold could not, thought Elizabeth, be in want of money, and she therefore gave him no more substantial marks of her approbation than her countenance and protection. Thrown thus unexpectedly upon his own resources, Dee began in earnest to search for the philosopher's stone. He worked incessantly amongst his furnaces, retorts, and crucibles, and almost poisoned himself with the deleterious fumes. He also consulted his miraculous crystal, but the spirits appeared not to him. He tried one Bartholomew to supply the, the place of the invaluable Kelly, but he being a man of some little probity, and of no imagination at all, the spirits would not hold any communication with him. Dee then tried another pretender to philosophy, of the name of Hickman, but had no better fortune. The crystal had lost its power since the departure of its great high priest. From this quarter, then, Dee could get no information on the stone or elixir of the alchemists, and all his efforts to discover them by other means were not only fruitless but expensive. He was soon reduced to great distress, and wrote piteous letters to the Queen praying relief. He represented that after he left England with Count Lasky, the mob had pillaged his house at Mortlake, accusing him of being a necromancer and a wizard, and had broken all his furniture, burned his library, consisting of four thousand rare volumes, and destroyed all the philosophical instruments and curiosities in his museum. For this damage he claimed compensation, and furthermore stated that as he had come to England by the Queen's command, she ought to pay the expenses of his journey. Elizabeth sent him small sums of money at various times, but Dee, still continuing his complaints, a commission was appointed to inquire into his circumstances. He finally obtained a small appointment as Chancellor of St. Paul's Cathedral, which he exchanged in 1595 for the wardship of the college at Manchester. He remained in this capacity to 1602 or 1603, when his strength and intellect beginning to fail him, he was compelled to resign. He retired to his old dwelling at Mortlake, in a state not far removed from actual want, supporting himself as a common fortune-teller, and being often obliged to sell or pawn his books to procure a dinner. James I was often applied to on his behalf, but he refused to do anything for him. It may be said to the discredit of the king, that the only reward he would grant the indefatigable Stowe in his days of old age and want, was the royal permission to beg but no one will blame him for neglecting such a quack as John Dee. He died in 1608, in the 81st year of his age, and was buried at Mortlake. End of chapter 4, part 7